Welcome to the Legal Briefs Podcast. I'm Eric Kuhn. Prison literature occupies a small but meaningful place on our bookshelves. Its authors are often not just prisoners, but people with a need to give voice to an issue or a cause. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., for example, wrote letters from Birmingham Jail while he was serving time for organizing a nonviolent protest. Cervantes, on the other hand, wrote his famous Don Quixote, serving time for bad debts. Even rarer are writers who make a career of reporting about the voiceless inmates, largely forgotten by society, once they're locked up, especially from the viewpoint of having served real prison time themselves. We'll hear from one of them on Legal Briefs to learn about the state of criminal justice in the U.S. today, looking back in from the outside. Joining us on Legal Briefs is Kerry Blakinger, a staff writer for nonprofit news organization, The Marshall Project, and the first formerly incarcerated person to join its team. She's reported widely on prisons, the death penalty, and the justice system, and you've likely heard her interviewed on National Public Radio, offering insight gained from reporting on criminal justice and other topics for the Houston Chronicle, the Washington Post Magazine, Vice, the New York Daily News, and NBC News. But that was before she served 21 months in prison for heroin possession. Carrie, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. You recently shared a milestone on social media that really puts your personal journey in perspective. So I'd like to set up with that. You noted that 10 years ago, your arrest made page one of a local Gannett newspaper, exactly 10 years ago to the day that you had a byline in Gannett's flagship, USA Today, reporting on the lack of soap and sanitizer for some Texas prisoners during the coronavirus pandemic. Let's start with you recalling what it was like to realize how far you've come since being arrested. There's all these sort of milestones that every time something like that happens, it's still shocking in a way. I always sort of can't believe that I'm here. And obviously one of those things was having my byline in a paper that had written about my arrest. But I mean, also just every year when I've had another year off of heroin, like, you know, every year when I realized this is the date that I, you know, got out of prison, you know, when I, uh, when I graduated from Cornell, these are all these milestones that I think would be significant to a lot of people. But when you've sort of fallen off the wagon and, and been in some dark places, I think some of these milestones have maybe more resonance. If anything, is it possible to say what incarceration taught you? I know people always talk about, well, if you, you know, paid your debts to society or what have you learned? Is, is it that simple or do people really misunderstand what that's about? I don't think it's that simple. I think there are a lot of things that you learn from prison and so many of them are not things anyone wants prison to teach you and are not things that are necessarily helpful to even be taught. But, you know, in terms of just this idea of paying your debt to society and sort of being rehabilitated, you know, I think when people do come out and manage to restart their lives in a positive way, it's usually not because of incarceration, but in spite of it. And I think that sometimes people are quick to be like, oh, well, you were a drug addict before and then you went to prison and you got sober and clearly prison worked for you. I stayed clean in spite of prison, not because of it. Because the thing is, you know, 
you can get heroin in prison. Like, I could get it delivered to my bedside. And people forget that when they think, like, oh, this is an enforced period of sobriety. It's not. In fact, it's really just guaranteed trauma, time away from, you know, your friends and family. And you can still get heroin if you choose to. And obviously, this is all separate from the issue of, like, punishment and sort of what is the appropriate punishment for various crimes, you know, violent or nonviolent or you know, if there's a victim or not, like, obviously that's a separate issue from like, does prison work and does prison keep you from doing drugs again? I'm cognizant of, of course, that as prosecutors listening to this, I'm not saying that the only point of prison is rehabilitation. But if we're talking about that aspect of it, I think it's worth noting that, you know, as I'm sure many listeners here are aware, that prison isn't rehabilitating people. And I feel like when people are rehabilitated afterwards, you know, there's a lot of other factors at play there, and it's something of a fluke in some ways. So you're still in touch with some inmates, former inmates or friends who you've had back then. Are they part of your network of sources? And how do you kind of reconcile the fact that, in a sense, you're an observer, but also an advocate now with the Marshall Project? The Marshall Project does not consider themselves advocates. I mean, I think there are some things where, you know, maybe it's a little clearer. When I wrote about, and this is when I was at the Houston Chronicle, my last job, when I wrote about prisoners not being given dentures and the prison system was blending up their food and pouring it into a cup and serving it to them that way, I think there's definitely a certain tone in my tweets about that because I I think there's some things that, you know, everyone can agree are not best practices. Um, And I would suggest that not giving people teeth and blending up their food is not best practice. But, you know, we're not advocates for journalists. And usually I've um, not covered the New York prison system much. I have some. And I haven't used as sources anyone that I was, like, a bunkie with. Like, I haven't used as a source someone that I was very close to. But in general, like, the idea of using another inmate that I did time with as a source is no different than any other reporter happening to interview someone who lives in their neighborhood. Like, I'm not going to interview my roommate, just like I'm not going to interview my, you know, former bunkie. Can you recall the moment you thought you wanted to be a reporter and to tell stories of people in prisons and whether or not there was a moment where you thought, well, maybe I'll be a prosecutor, having gone what you went through? I um, I think there's only one prosecutor's office I know that would hire me. Um, <laughs> there's one that keeps keeps joking that he wants to hire me, um, but otherwise I don't think most prosecutors' offices want to hire a felon. <laughs> so I think that's off the table for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I came to the Houston Chronicle that after I got hired there full time, the death row reporter had just retired. And my editor was like, hey, do you want to cover some death row stuff and, you know, maybe some prisons? And uh, it was only supposed to be sort of an on-the-side thing in addition to breaking news. And I realized that I was really good at it, and I really liked it. I really liked the legal aspect of death penalty reporting. I really enjoyed attempting to learn post-conviction law. I also enjoyed that I was good at understanding prisons and prisoners and the corrections officers. Like, I understood that world. So those two assignments, prisons and 
death penalty went from being like a sort of side thing to, you know, quickly being my whole job. You and your colleagues at the Marshall Project are doing some rigorous reporting uh, on prisons and COVID-19 issues right now. Uh, In an NPR interview you did recently, you said that COVID-19 and prisons are a recipe for disaster. What are some of the biggest issues we haven't even begun to think of at this point, a few months into this pandemic? There's the sort of obvious ones that, you know, a lot of basic disease prevention measures are not possible. You can't do social distancing. Aside from the fact that people are housed so much on top of each other, like they're also chained together when you transport them. You know, you can't have hand sanitizer, like soap and water access is questionable at best. And then, of course, a lot of prisoners come in with more medical needs. As a whole, the prison population more frequently has like high blood pressure, more diabetes, more HIV, more hep C, more asthma, like all of those sort of basic medical conditions that people tend to have tend to occur more in prison populations. And then you've also got the fact that prisoners are aging. Like, you know, we gave out all those long sentences in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now these prison populations are aging. So these are the demographics that are particularly vulnerable to something like coronavirus, and they're in a situation where they can't do any of the social distancing. Um, And then, of course, you add to that that prison medical care is terrible. I'm sure there's some exceptions, but, you know, as a whole, it's not good. I mean, there's a lot of problems just in terms of why it seems likely that it could spread like wildfire once it gets into any of these facilities. But that also affects us on the outside, of course, because you have all the staff and all the officers who come in and out three shifts a day. You know, so this is not just a prisons only issue. This is something that will come back out into the community. And if we let it just fester in prisons, it's going to end up taking away respirators and hospital beds from people in the free world. Do you think if you look at, say, Larry Krasner, the progressive DA and some of the more progressive prosecutors who are winning district attorney races recently. There are a lot of questions about mass incarceration. And could this be one of those bellwether moments where the future will have a much different approach to mass incarceration? I mean, I think that's definitely possible. I think there's a few ways this could go. I mean, the one is that, yes, there's a lot of prosecutors and some judges and some sheriffs talking about rapidly decarcerating some of these areas how successful that is or isn't and what public safety looks like after that will obviously have an impact. By the way, as in Texas, I don't know, as of yesterday, the governor here stepped in to try to limit the possibility of the Harris County Jail releasing people in the face of this pandemic. There's an ongoing lawsuit here over bail reform. And some of the lawyers in that filed a motion to try to get a temporary restraining order to have 1,000 to 4,000 people who are detained pre-trial on felony charges where they just can't afford bond to have them released. And the county was working out a deal that this was like maybe going to happen. And it's in federal court. Judge Rosenthal was discussing it for the past few days. And then yesterday, Governor Abbott stepped in and barred the use of personal bonds in any case where the person has a charge involving violence or threat of violence or any prior charge involving violence or threat of violence. So like even if you're currently in on a misdemeanor, you can't be released on a personal bond. Like you have to pay cash. I mean, nothing's stopping the judges from setting everyone's bond at $1. And 
obviously there are a lot of lawyers that are asking, does he really have the authority to do this? He also had some stuff in that executive order about good time to set rules about how the sheriffs choose to calculate good time for people that are sentenced to jail time. But, you know, I think it's interesting that in other places, like we're seeing all these releases and maybe that will make people think more about, you know, whether those people needed to be incarcerated in the first place. But then in a place like Texas, they're actually trying to keep people in. So I wondered if that would actually have the opposite effect when it comes to bond reform. And then the other thing about this all that I've thought about a lot is that when prisons don't have visitation or programming or volunteers coming in for months, I wonder if they're going to, at the end of this, be like, well, that was okay. We didn't have visits for six months and nothing blew up. So let's just keep doing that. I wonder if this will end up being something where the new norm is that prisons are more opaque and there are fewer people allowed in them. Is there a playbook for this sort of thing? You know, there's been some news recently about a pandemic playbook. Uh, We have a situation now where really early release or different types of exceptions are going to be made. Has anyone done anything that could anticipate whether or not that could result in a backlash that could overwhelm the criminal justice system in the same way hospitals are becoming overwhelmed? I can't think of anything comparable to this. And even if you look at any other situation where there's been any large number of people released from jails or prisons, I'm not sure that any of it, any normal release is comparable to a pandemic. I mean, just your basic patterns of crime are going to be so different. Like, you can't be burglarizing houses because everyone's home. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of the crime patterns just, it just doesn't even translate to our normal reality. Have you developed any thoughts on victims' rights on the other side of the equation since you began your reporting and carefully looking at the criminal justice system? First of all, I, I think it's worth noting that a lot of people who are in prison or in jail are also victims of various crimes. It's not a binary. It's not an either or. I mean, I've been victim of a number of crimes, some violent crimes. Like this is sort of the reality of how being addicted to drugs works. So crime victims are not always a separate category from the, you know, quote unquote offenders. I've also found that a lot of the crime victim advocacy groups are very focused on a specific sort of crime victim. If a crime victim doesn't say the things you expect them to say, there's not always a room for their voice in the conversation. I can think of some of those, particularly death penalty cases, is where those voices stir the most controversy if you have like a victim's family that doesn't support an execution anymore. As a reporter, when you're dealing with a, you know, victim's family of any stripes, whether they're in favor of the punishment or against it, whether they're another family member and the offender was in the same family, these are some of the hardest stories to report and I mean you guys as prosecutors would know this like how how gut-wrenching it is dealing with that grief like so up close and trying to tell their story in a way that honors them and is truthful and you know doesn't get lost in the emotion but still conveys it those are some of the really gut-wrenching stories that stick with you it's a difficult balance as a reporter to try to honor that and yet also 
realized that in writing about prisoners, I fill an important role of like being a voice for the voiceless because this is a population that people don't care about and don't tend to cover. Will you personally know what it was like to walk out of prison after serving 21 months? That must have been a big moment for you. With all of the early releases that we're going to be seeing, what do you think is the best advice you might be able to give to you know, inmates who are suddenly finding themselves outside when they least expected it? I mean, right now, in the middle of a pandemic, to tell someone who's never been in prison what to do tomorrow, you know? I mean, I just, I can't imagine coming out into the middle of this. And in terms of reentry, it seems like a complete nightmare. Like any of the organizations that are in place to support people, to find housing, like they may not be operating. If they're volunteer, like there's a, a decent chance they're not operating, they're from home. They might not have jobs themselves. There's so little safety net on a good day. And this is not a good day. And we have a lot of not good days ahead. So it's going to be an incredibly difficult time for someone who's done some time. I mean, obviously, it's different if we're talking about someone who was arrested two weeks ago and is detained pre-trial and, you know, we're now letting them out. Um, it's scary, of course, coming out into a pandemic. It's scary for all of us out here being in a pandemic. But, you know, for people who've done time and are getting compassionate release, I mean, that's going to be incredibly difficult. Imagine the irony of being told your sentence has been commuted and, you know, welcome to the pandemic. Uh, it's going to create a lot of very difficult situations for a lot of people. Are you worried at all about what the dynamic inside prisons will be with this shift in the prison population? What, what's the effect going to be? Is it going to be harder for current prison staff? It's certainly going to be harder because aside from however it might impact the prisoners themselves and how that might change their behavior, just the simple fact that staff are going to get sick and most prison systems are understaffed, some egregiously so. And if you have a prison that is 50% of the staffing it needs and 20% get sick, you have a problem, you know, because not only do you have the issue of if there is violence, you are not equipped to do anything about it. Like it also becomes difficult to try to implement any of the attempts at like social distancing that some of these prisons are doing. Like if you don't have enough staff to supervise the spread out inmates, then you can't let them spread out. And then you also just have the issue of if you don't have enough staff, you can't let people out of their cells for various things. And it just increases tensions. And then if the tensions get to a breaking point where there is any sort of violence, you don't have enough people to respond to it. There's a lot of facilities where I'm not that optimistic about how this turns out. I was already talking to a prisoner yesterday. His unit is already experiencing some amount of unrest. Like there were guys setting fires in their cells. This is not even something that's really made the news. Like we've already seen a few escapes, some in Washington state and some in South Dakota. There's already some video coming out showing some level of unrest. And this is all very early into things. So, I mean, I think there's very valid concerns about how crazy and how violent it could potentially get in some of these places and how little staff there will be to deal with it and how little answers we might ever get. You know, a lot of these prisons are incredibly opaque 
And I don't have a lot of confidence that we'll necessarily get complete or honest answers in a lot of cases. To all the people who are socially isolated right now and confined to their homes or apartments who are complaining that it's like prison, if you had a, oh, no, 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 what would you tell them about how they can cope? It's not like being in prison because if you were going to simulate prison, you would do it by, you know, not having a phone or internet or TV and locking yourself in the bathroom the entire time, having someone like throw food at you and maybe yell at you every so often. And that would be closer to prison. I think that some of the things that I did in prison to cope have been things that I've turned to a lot now. I'm running a lot. I used to run in circles in the cell block in jail. I'm sure I drove everyone crazy. And I did a lot of crosswords. Um, You know, to me, it was these things that were such black and white tasks. There's so much uncertainty and there's so many shades of gray and so many questions in life right now at this moment. But when I'm running, you know, I can continue just putting one foot in front of the other until I complete that task. Like it's very black and white. It's, I can do this one thing. And the same thing with crosswords. Like I can really, you know, sort of lose myself in either of those tasks. But just the certainty that they provide was something that was incredibly helpful in getting me through prison and it was incredibly helpful now. And, you know, obviously aside from that, it's so important to stay connected to people and that's obviously hard to do in the sense that we're used to, but there are still online communities. There are, you know, there's Zoom. I'm already sick of Zoom. Um, And, you know, there's all sorts of people that you can have in your life and keep in touch with. And those things are important too. I do think it's worth noting that no one experiences this the same. Like some people are going to have a really hard time with isolating and some people will not. And it's not always predictable. Like you might be kind of a loner and find that you just can't deal with the idea of like enforced loneliness because that's a very different thing. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. You have a, a remarkable perspective on an often overlooked aspect to what's happening in society, especially right now. We're grateful you could take the time to uh, share some of your thinking. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you. You can follow Carrie Blakinger's work at themarshallproject.org. This podcast is a production of the National District Attorneys Association. As always, if you have comments or questions, please visit ndaa.org forward slash contact. I'm Eric Kuhn. Thanks for listening.